This is a continuation of The Relevance of the Communist Manifesto by Slavoj Žižek. The Communist Horizon So, to conclude, the vision that underlies the Communist Manifesto is that of a society gradually approaching its final crisis, a situation in which the complexity of social life is simplified into one great antagonism between capitalists and the proletarian majority. However, even a quick look at the 20th century communist revolutions makes it clear that this simplification never took place. Radical communist movements were always confined to a minority in the vanguard, and in order for it to gain hegemony, it had to wait patiently for a crisis, usually a war, to provide a narrow window of opportunity. Those are the moments when an authentic vanguard can seize the day, mobilize the people, even if not an actual majority, and take over. Communists were always utterly non-dogmatic in this respect, ready to parasitize other issues, be they land and peace, as in Russia, or national liberation and unity against corruption, as in China. They were always well aware that the mobilization will soon be over, and were carefully preparing the power apparatus to keep them in power at that moment, in contrast to the October Revolution, which explicitly treated peasants as secondary allies. The Chinese Revolution didn't even pretend to be proletarian. It directly addressed farmers as its base. The problem of Western Marxism, and even of Marxism tout court, was the absence of the revolutionary subject. How is it that the working class did not complete the passage from being in itself to being for itself, and did not constitute itself as a revolutionary agent? This problem provided the main reason for its appeal to psychoanalysis, which was evoked precisely to explain the unconscious libidinal mechanisms that prevent the rise of such a class consciousness inscribed in the very being, or social condition, of the working class. In this way, the truth of Marx's socio-economic analysis was saved, and there was no reason to give ground to revisionist theories about the rise of the middle classes. For the same reason, Western Marxism was also in a constant search for other social groups that could play the role of the revolutionary agent, be the understudy ready to replace the indisposed working class, third world peasants, students, and intellectuals, the excluded marginals. The latest version of this idea operates with refugees. Only the influx of a really large number of refugees can revitalize the European radical left. This line of thought is thoroughly obscene and cynical, notwithstanding the fact that such a development would, for sure, give an immense boost to anti-immigrant brutality. The truly crazy aspect of this idea is the project of filling in the gap left by absent proletarians by importing stand-ins from abroad. This way, one gets a revolution outsourced from a surrogate revolutionary agent. The failure of the working class as a revolutionary subject lay already at the core of the Bolshevik Revolution. Lenin's art was to detect the potential for rage, to adopt Sloterdijk's concept of the disappointed peasants. The October Revolution won thanks to the slogan, Land and Peace, addressed to the vast majority of peasants, and well calculated to seize the short moment of their radical dissatisfaction. At the time of the 1918 revolution, Lenin had been thinking along these lines for a decade or so, which is why he was horrified at the prospect of the success of the Stolopin land reforms, which aimed at creating a new strong class of independent farmers. He wrote that, if Stolopin succeeds, the chance for a revolution is lost for decades. All successful socialist revolutions from Cuba to Yugoslavia followed this model, seizing their chances in an extreme critical situation, and co-opting the cause of national liberation or other forms of rage capital. 
Of course, a partisan of the logic of hegemony would point out here that this is a very normal logic of revolutions, and that critical mass is reached precisely and only through a series of equivalences among multiple demands, a fact that is always radically contingent and that depends on a specific, even unique, set of circumstances. A revolution never occurs when all antagonisms collapse into the big one, but when they synergetically combine their power. The problem here is rather complex. The point is not just that revolution no longer rides the train of history in accordance with its laws, since there is no history. Since history is a contingent and open process, there's a different problem. It is as if there is a law of history, a more or less clear and predominant main line of historical development, which indicates that revolution can occur only in interstices against the current. Revolutionaries have to wait patiently for the usually very brief period of time when the system openly malfunctions or collapses, seize their window of opportunity, grab the power, which at that moment lies in the street and is up for grabs, as it were, and then fortify their hold on it by building repressive apparatuses and whatnot, so that, once the moment of confusion is over and the majority gets sober and disappointed by the new regime, it is too late to get rid of them and they are firmly entrenched. Communists were also always carefully calculating the right moment to stop popular mobilization. Let's take the case of the Chinese Cultural Revolution, which undoubtedly contained the elements of an enacted utopia. At its very end, before the agitation was blocked by Mao himself, since he had already achieved his goals of regaining full power and getting rid of competition, in the top ranks of the nomenclatura, there was the Shanghai Commune, one million workers who simply took the official slogan seriously, demanding the abolition of the state, even of the party itself, and a direct communal organization of society. It is significant that it was at this very point that Mao ordered the army to intervene and to restore order. The paradox is that of a leader who triggers an uncontrolled upheaval while trying to exert full personal power, in an overlap between extreme dictatorship and extreme emancipation of the masses. In a short poem written apropos the German Democratic Republic, GDR, Workers' Uprising in 1953, Brecht quotes a contemporary party functionary as saying that the people has lost the government's trust. Would it not therefore be easier, Brecht slyly asks, to dissolve this people and have the government elect another one? Instead of reading this poem as a case of Brechtian irony, one should take it seriously. Yes, in a situation of popular mobilization, the people is in a way replaced, transubstantiated. The inert mass of the ordinary people is transubstantiated into a politically engaged united force. The problem is, again, that this transubstantiation cannot last forever. One should always bear in mind that a permanent presence of the people equals a permanent state of exception. So what happens when the people gets tired, or when people are no longer able to sustain the tension? Communists in power had two solutions, or rather two sides of one and the same solution. The party's reign over a massive population and a fake popular mobilization. Trotsky himself, the theorist of permanent revolution, was well aware that people cannot live for years in an uninterrupted state of high tension and intense activity, and turned this fact into an argument about the need for a vanguard party. Self-organization into councils cannot take over the role of the party, which should run things when people get tired, and to amuse them and maintain appearances. An occasional big spectacle of pseudo-mobilization has proved to be of some use, from Stalinist parades to North Korea's massive military displays today. In capitalist countries, there is, of course, another way to dispel popular pressure. More or less free elections, recently in Egypt and Turkey, 
But in 1968, they worked in France too. One should not forget that the agent of popular pressure is always a minority. Even the Occupy Wall Street was, with regard to its active participants, much closer to 1% than to the 99% of its big slogan. The underlying problem here is the one I already encountered at the beginning of my essay. How are we able to think of the singular universality of the emancipatory subject as not purely formal, that is, as objectively, materially determined, yet without the working class as its substantial base? The solution is a negative one. It is capitalism itself that offers a negative substantive determination. The global capitalist system is the substantive base that mediates and generates the excesses, slums, ecological threats, etc., that open up the site of resistance. Left-wing visions abound around us of how our task is to bring together different groups of the exploited and underprivileged of today's global capitalism, immigrants, unemployed, precarious workers, victims of sexual, racial, and religious oppression, dissatisfied students, into a united front of emancipatory struggle. But the problem is that we, in clear contrast to Marxists, can no longer envisage the process of this unification in global solidarity. The question of the continuing relevance of Marxist critique of political economy in our era of global capitalism has to be answered in a properly dialectical way. Not only are Marx's critique of political economy and his outline of capitalist dynamics still fully actual, one should take one step further and claim that it is only today, with global capitalism, that, to put it in Hegelese, reality arrived at these notions. However, a properly dialectical reversal intervenes here. At this very moment of full actuality, the limitation has to appear. The moment of triumph is that of defeat. After the overcoming of external obstacles, the new threat comes from within, signaling an imminent inconsistency. When reality fully reaches up to its notion, this notion itself has to be transformed. Therein resides the properly dialectical paradox. Marx was not simply wrong, he was often right, but more literally than he himself expected to be. So what is the conclusion? Should we write off the Communist Manifesto as an interesting document of the past and nothing more? In a properly dialectical paradox, very impasses and failures of 20th century communism, impasses that were clearly grounded in the limitations of the Communist Manifesto itself, at the same time bear witness to this actuality. The classic Marxist solution failed, but the problem remains. Today, communism is not the name of a solution, but the name of a problem, namely that of commons in all its dimensions. The problem of a commons of nature as the substance of our life. The problem of our biogenetic commons. The problem of our cultural commons, intellectual property. And, last but not least, the problem of a commons as the universal space of humanity from which no one should be excluded. Whatever the solution, it will have to deal with these problems. In Soviet translations, Marx's well-known statement to Paul Lafargue, what is certain is that I am not a Marxist, was rendered thus, if this is Marxism, then I am not a Marxist. This mistranslation renders perfectly the transformation of Marxism in university discourse. In Soviet Marxism, even Marx was a Marxist and participated in the same universal knowledge that composes Marxism. The fact that he created the teaching later known by this label made no difference. So his denial above does not refer just to a specific wrong version that falsely proclaimed itself to be Marxism. Marx meant something more radical. A gap separates him, the creator who has a substantive relationship with his teaching, from the Marxists who follow this teaching. There's a well-known joke by the Marx brothers that captures this idea. You look like Emmanuel Ravelli, but I am Emmanuel Ravelli, so no wonder you look like him. 
The guy who is Ravelli doesn't look like Ravelli, he simply is Ravelli. In the same way, Marx himself is not a Marxist, one among others. He is the point of reference exempted from the series, because it is by reference to him that others are Marxists. And the only way to remain faithful to Marx today is to stop being a Marxist, and to repeat instead Marx's grounding gesture in a new way. That rounds out the relevance of the Communist Manifesto, written by Slavoj Žižek in 2019. I have mixed feelings, in the same way that I have mixed feelings about modern implementations of Marxism and the limitations of Marxist philosophy. We're still grappling with new forms of monopoly, new forms of warfare, new forms of coerced labor, and obfuscations of class dynamics. The outcomes, though, are essentially the same. The rich get richer, and the poor get poorer. So what can we do about it? Volunteer in mutual aid groups. Develop direct action campaigns. Unionize your workplace. Create anti-fascist art and music. Normalize queer liberation. Learn from the experiences of immigrants, of your non-white peers, of neurodivergent acquaintances, of unhoused people. Educate your friends and family. If you have the stomach to participate in local politics, then campaign for socialists in your area. Whatever it is that you do, comrade, enjoy your epoch.